When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we have some people watching us now, and this is Benjamin Boyce, and my guest is Carlin Bersinko. Indeed. Well done. Well and, played. And all I know about her is that she's pretty rad, and she's uh, been running this YouTube channel for not that long of a time, but you're also an organizational psychologist. Yes. Yeah. So my backstory is I'm, 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 well, I'm an organizational psychologist, which means that I work with organizations all over the world to help create better working environments. Um, my kind of area of specialty is combining organizational psychology and positive psychology and also throwing in mindfulness techniques to help people reduce their stress, build um, more highly resilient working groups, things like that. Uh, and so that's, that's what I do. But um, yeah, I also have a YouTube channel that I, I started just to talk about workplace stuff, and then about a month into it, an article that I wrote about going to a Trump rally as a Democrat went viral on the internet, and then my channel kind of accidentally exploded into um, like the politics realm, and I talk a lot about uh, social justice stuff and how I think it's impacting the world and things like that. So, Do you ever give implicit mindfulness trainings? people implicit mind yeah i mean i wouldn't ne not necessarily implicit i think wh where i've really kind of found my sweet spot and i actually wrote a whole book about this is taking different mindfulness principles and making them practical in the work environment so a lot of times people don't know how to translate mindfulness into into the workspace in a way that that feels appropriate and so that's kind of where where i sit not, not so much about meditation, but other things. Okay. Uh, yeah. Before we translate mindfulness, uh, could you define mindfulness? Is there like a yeah. red, so blue I... pill that we can swallow? <laughs> so when I'm looking at mindfulness, I think about three core principles. The first is being aware, being aware of what's going on in your mind, the internal dialogue that you're having, how you're perceiving different certain situations, how you're perceiving different coworkers. Uh, yeah. Also being aware of any signals that you're getting from the body about if you might be under stress, if you might be getting angry, that sort of thing. Just noticing, not, not, not judging them at all. Mm. Um, so being aware number one uh, the second is existing in the present moment so oftentimes in work and frankly in life in general everything i talk about can be applied to both work and life people let what has happened in the past get in the way of what's going on right now so they think oh this bad thing happened to me three years ago maybe maybe in a former job they they had an idea for this great strategy and then it failed colossally and they think oh it, it failed that one time three years ago so it's always going to fail well guess what three years later that strategy may have found its time it may be the the audience may be ready for it so you don't want to let the past get in the way of what you're working on in the present in the same token you don't want to let any fear of what might happen in the future get in the way of what you're working on right now so how that manifests is people who say you know i'm i'm not even going to try because my boss will 
never approve the budget for this. And so they, they psych themselves out. Or, or a lot of times, actually, what I see most often is people say, my boss hates me. I'm going to get fired. So there's no point in even trying. And hmm. then in, in having that philosophy, they end up getting themselves fired because it impacts how they're interacting with their boss. Okay. So being in that present moment, focusing on what's going on in front of you right now, not worrying about the past, not worrying about the future. The last part is try to take a non-judgmental approach as as much as possible and essentially that you know we make we make upwards of 35,000 judgments or choices every single day so we're always making judgments about different things and most of the time we're doing it without thinking about it well what if we just slowed down and kind of just looked at what's in front of us and say this isn't good this isn't bad it just is and when you give yourself that space when you give yourself that pause you're able to take whatever's in front of you even if it seems like it might be kind of a bad thing and use it to your best advantage you open yourself up to more opportunities so those are kind of my three principles some principles um so i might be going out on a limb or getting too quick to the punch here, but it seems like those stand in direct contradiction to this anti-bias training and this, uh, like, ah. Robin D'Angelo's white fragility that projects a judgment onto everybody about a status of being racialized or racist or oppressed. And uh, have you have you thought about that? Uh, maybe you could give some, like, when did this stuff come on yeah. your radar? And then how did you start to wrangle with it? Yeah. So when, when this stuff first came on my radar, um, honestly, the first inklings I got from it were a couple years ago when uh, some, I, I tend to work with younger organizations just because that I, it just tends to work out that way. And so a couple years ago, I started see, hearing about microaggressions all the time. Yeah. Everything was a microaggression. Everyone was running to HR complaining about these microaggressions. They were stupid things like someone forgot to CC you on an email and so you're being microaggressed against or someone forgot to invite you to a meeting. Things that literally happen to anyone in a professional work environment, right? And then there was all sorts of interpersonal challenges that were created because of these microaggressions. So that was when I first started to perk up and say, what is going on here? But honestly, it, it wasn't really, uh, it, it wasn't as big a deal with most of my clients at that time. And what actually got my attention with the social justice stuff was uh, in the knitting community. Because I'm a knitter. I, I knit avidly. I knit every single day. And one of the places that knitters tend to congregate is on Instagram because we can show off our work and our yarns and all this stuff. And so what started to happen about a year and a half ago in the knitting world was these roving gangs of social justice warriors going around attacking and bullying and mobbing people and trying to destroy people's businesses. And and it was just it was awful. And I didn't yeah. understand what was happening happening and so then then i kind of started to pay attention to it and then the minute that i started paying attention to it i started seeing more of it show up in the work environment so it's kind of one of those things that i think a lot of people they 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 interact with um with what's going on and and they don't really understand it it's kind of like that's kind of odd or i don't understand that person's approach but they don't necessarily see the big picture of of what's happening until until you see it and then you cannot unsee it ever and you start seeing it everywhere mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how 
well, l- l- let me go back a little bit so we know where we're kind of going to compare and contrast yeah. uh, different sorts of, I guess, HR strategies towards uh, working together in a workplace. How does mm-hmm. mindfulness scale? It seems like it's very individual based. And yes. and how do you get that to foster in uh, corporate community or culture? Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's a great op- observation. It is very individual based and it is all I've always approached it as helping people to become more personally empowered in their work experience and in their career, because one of the things I do an awful lot of is manager training, training managers, how to be good managers, see their employees as human beings, not treat them as though they're some kind of cog in a, mach- a machine um, and adapting your management style to to each of your employees. And that goes along with work style stuff, which we might actually get into too, because a lot of the things that Robin D'Angelo says are white supremacy in organizations actually just comes back down to conflict and work style. And we'll talk about that. Um, but but so one of the things that I hear from managers all the time is they say, Carlin, how can I just get my team members to do what I want them to do without asking them? That is the number one question that I'm asked. And so uh, when I approached mindfulness training at work, it was all about helping people to personally empower themselves so that we could appease the managers who just wanted these people to go out and do things and not be asking permission all the time. So you're right. It is it is a very individual thing. But I found that when we do mindfulness training, in small groups in organizations, I'm talking like 20 people or less, we can really start to make, and and this works especially well in like small to mid-sized organizations, we can really start to make um, a lot of difference in terms of how much control people feel like they have over their job. I mean, people all the time, more than you would think, are constantly waiting for their boss to give them permission to do things. And there's there's kind of like an unwritten expectation there that if you're my boss, you're gonna you're gonna tell me exactly what to do at every single moment. Well, bosses don't want to operate like that. Bosses just want to kind of kick back in their chair and focus on their own work and trust that their people are going to to do the things they want them to do. So there's a disconnect there between what the employee expects and what the boss wants. And when we can get the employees to take more control and personal responsibility over what they're contributing to their work experience, that tends to make the bosses happy as well. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) And so how do you, I guess, measure competency you, you don't worry about that then. You worry about empowerment. So what what is like the – could you define empowerment just a little bit more? Because that is a word that's used in this alternative training. Yeah. Well, competency is not something I tend to worry about. And, and I think this is actually a really important point because – especially when you're working with younger professionals, they're not competent. They're not learning how to do their actual job in college. They're coming in and and young professionals, and I I define young professionals as really anyone 30 and under. It's kind of an apprentice state for where you're at in your career. Even even when you start to get promoted and move up the ranks, no one has ever taught you how to do these things before. And so most people are really figuring it out on the job. And Mm -hmm. so what I mean by empowerment is essentially you're not waiting for someone else to give you permission to do things. You feel as though you you can you can tell yourself, you can give yourself permission to go take that meeting or go start that project or go go work on that strategy or create that plan. You're not waiting for for the boss to come say, "Go do this X, Y, B, and Z." Mm-hmm. And how what are some of the snags in that if everybody's an independent operator and how how do you uh, navigate the uh, disharmony that might arise from too many strong self-willed cats running ah. about? 
Well, the funny thing is, so this this gets into a conversation about work style, because every every single person comes into the office with different preferences and tendencies uh, for how they're going to communicate with their coworkers, how they're going to operate in in a work environment. And so one of those, and there are basically four main types of work styles that I look at. I use the DISC model for work style simply because it's the easiest for people who might not be familiar with this. It's a little bit like the the MBTI, the Myers Briggs, or Jordan Peterson uses the the Big Five, which I know about this much about I just but there's some alignment with this this is the one I found is the most easy disc has four main work styles the first one starts with the D that's for dominant D's are like if you think of a D think of Donald Trump Donald Trump is for lack of a better term the the biggest <laughs> D on the planet <laughs> I think most people will agree with you on either yeah. side of that aisle well and that's that's good and bad, right? Because you know, D's they bring a big, strong leadership presence to the workplace. They they are the big picture people. They are the people that, if you were to take the term, uh, the phrase "ready, aim, fire" and put it in the mouth of a D, it's going to be "ready, fire, aim," because they they want to move yeah. first and they don't. They're the bull in the china shop, and we need those people. We need those people to give us the big inspirational ideas. They usually have a lot of charisma, that sort of thing. The next work style is the I work style. This is the influencer work style. And this is all about uh, people. They're the people people. They're the natural sales people. They're the people that can walk into a networking event and they'll know anyone within 20 minutes and be able to strike up a conversation. And they're just really fun. And and they're, they're the social creatures of the office. They're always like bopping around to different places. They tend to wear the bright colors, have the candy on the desk, that sort of thing. Yeah. Then, and those are our, those are our more kind of like experience Aggressive, um, extroverted, the, the decent, yeah, Maybe. extroverted, okay. like out there. They're not big personalities. So that's about fifty percent of your workforce, right there. Every single style is about twenty-five percent of the workforce, give or take. Um, <laughs> then you get into the more kind of like introverted thoughtful, methodical work styles, which you start off with the S's. The S's are the supporter style, or I actually call them the service style most of the time. These are like the office moms. These are the, This is the style that takes care of other people. They actually gain internal satisfaction and motivation by helping to support the team. They tend to be very quiet. They also tend to be the people that you might say um, they put up a lot of red tape. So they're, they're the people that are like afraid of change because they're always asking questions like, is this thing going to break that thing? Um, and usually they're just doing it because they don't want problems to be created. Right. So that's they're kind of like the mild mannered style. Hmm. And then you have your C's, which are your conscientious style, which is all about like um, if, if Dr. Spock took the disc, they'd be a C. Right. Spock would be a C for sure, because it's all about data and process and logic and ration. And they do not like emotions at all in the workplace. So that's kind of our broad overview of the four styles. But I bring that up to say is that in most workplaces, and it's not an exact science, every every workplace is different, uh, but in most places, you are going to have about 25% of each style. That's just how it works out. That's how the assessment is normed. And so when we're talking about people personally empowering themselves, you like every single work style brings some 
something and balances out the other work styles in the organization. So if you can help people understand what they're bringing to the organization, and this is part of where awareness comes in, what they're bringing in terms of their work style, and then understand the other work styles that they're interacting with, Mm -hmm. that instantly gives them a lot of strategies for how they can interact with each other in a kind way, in an empathetic way, where they're not where they're not stepping on each other's toes, where they are working together, where they are collaborating. And so um, that's kind of how you can overcome the stepping on toes is first, you know, knowing that not everyone's going to be that big forceful D like Donald Trump. Some people are going to take a more lax approach and it usually all balances each other out. Who would you say uh, or what would you say Obama would be just so we have like a compare and contrast? So I actually think that Obama would be a D as well. But the thing of it is, is that most people are actually like a combination of two styles. Like I'm a D and an I combination. Um, And so I think Obama also had some I in him because it's also just like very charismatic and always out there. But I think I think most politicians honestly have a lot of the D style in them. In your experience of that roving band of mm-hmm. where were the ladies that roamed the countryside in ancient Greece and decapitated men uh, the Dionysiates or the Bacchanals yes. I think, <laughs> like yes, I think so. <laughs> so you've had some interaction with that on a it sounds like on an internet or a disembodied level but what is yeah. your feeling about the dynamics of that correctness culture that turns into cancel culture and, and how it's operating and how it's just kind of takes over organizations well, you know, the ironic thing is, and, and I was actually I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago, is what I see in in those roving gangs of social justice warriors is that there is always a, someone at the helm of, of that roving gang. Right. And, and usually that person tends to be exactly like Donald Trump. They tend to have that same high D style. It's my way or the highway. My way is the correct way. And they usually tend to be very charismatic so that they gain a lot of followers that might have some of the more passive styles in them where they're like, Oh, this person is, is saying this and they seem pretty confident that that person over there is a white supremacist because they haven't bent the knee to, to the white, white fragility training. Yeah. Um, so there, there usually does tend to be kind of like, that that leader and then there tends to be like a lot of followers who don't have as strong of a personality at least that i've seen is there something about what is your conception of what they're trying to do and why they act the way that they do just within i guess we can use the knitting community like what was what do you think that was about or what was it power power it's all about power. That's what that's what the high D's care about is they care about power and they care about control. Now they can care about it for different reasons. A lot of them care about um, control and power because they 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 are deathly afraid of failure is what it is and they are afraid that if i am not the one at the top of the helm if i'm not the one that is calling the shots then i am not going to achieve what i want to achieve so i do think and there are people that disagree with me on this i do think that there most of the people that get caught up in the social justice stuff um they i think they come from a good place i think that they genuinely believe that what they're doing is going to create a better world a more fair world a more just world and and they're they're taking control because it's their job to eradicate racism and and all this stuff i also believe there are there are a smaller minority that do not come from a positive place i believe that those people tend to exhibit a lot of characteristics of um narcissistic personality disorder 
to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think most people are coming from a just place. And so this this idea that, um, you know, if they aren't in control, if they aren't the ones calling the shots, then we are going to have a fundamentally racist world that mm-hmm. is out of line with what they feel is acceptable. Well, within the context of an organization, how do you restrain or contact or connect with that overly dominant failure adverse personality to tone them down a little bit. Is there ways to wrangle that? Especially if they're so dominant, how do you dominate the dominant? Well, that's I, I, that's exactly actually what you have to do. That's exactly what you do when you have. And I used to give this advice to young professionals all the time when they had like a high D boss. Um, is I would say you have to take them out of control. You have to come in and be even more D than they are because life is about balance. So, so I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a little risque for a moment because it's just like the best example Great. that I can possibly give of this. I I know you're welcome. So, but okay, so. Life is about balance. People cannot, if we have someone, say your average executive, and that executive goes in and they are the president of the company and they're calling the shots and they have to be the big swinging D in the room, so to speak, um, They, the, people cannot live their whole lives like that. So when that big, powerful person goes home at night, guess what tends to happen? They tend to be more submissive. So if we're thinking about... Um, hmm. It's like Macbeth then, Macbeth then, kind of thing. It, it is, it is. So, so like, um, you know, <laughs> I always hesitate to give this example, but I'm just going to do it. So, like, in in like the kink world, and I find this a lot with executives because I'm an executive coach. I hear all their dirty secrets. So, all these powerful executives that I coach, when they go home at night in the bedroom, the wife is holding the whip. Mm. Okay, literally, literally. Because if you if you are in control all day, you need some some time to yourself to be taken out of control. That feels okay. good. That provides balance. Mm. So, um, when when you want to overwhelm these high D personalities in the workplace, you have to come in and out D them. You have to come in and be like, this is what we're gonna do. This is why we're gonna do it. This is how we're gonna do it. Mm-hmm. And literally even hit your hand like that because that's what they like and you take them out of control because what they're looking for is comfort they're looking for someone to to come in and say i've got this you don't have to worry about it i've got control of this i'm going to make sure that we that we win that we get across the finish line i think it's the same thing with sjw's in organizations or out of them but let's focus on that in organization for a second what's happening is that these people are, are in organizations, they're coordinating amongst themselves, they're having these conversations, they're creating these plans to, to do all this anti-racist stuff. No one is telling them no. No one is telling them there are better ways to achieve this. No one is coming in except for Robin D'Angelo and her band of merry men to say there are solutions to this problem. So because they're so afraid of be it what would happen if they were out of control no one's presented them an alternative mm-hmm. so the only thing they have is i have to come in and take control of this scenario otherwise we are going to to fix things mm-hmm. to fix all the racism yeah Does that makes sense yeah it, it i might be again getting a little too far out there but okay. when when it's the entire culture that is dominated by these d's it makes for very rowdy seas. And I guess, yeah. is, is it just constant escalation? Is that what you see until we reach some sort of uh, floor of uh, physical confrontation? No, because, listen, if, 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 um, if someone comes in and takes them out of control, what tends to happen is they calm down. 
Hmm. Because they feel more safe. I mean, it, it sounds really counterintuitive, but that's actually a safe space for them. If they can look to someone and say, oh, my gosh, I don't need to be in control because the boss has got it or the HR director's got it or whoever they trust uh, to to have control in that situation, it tends to calm them down. So you, you if someone is coming in and saying, we've got a strategy for this, we're going to take care of it, we're going to do whatever it is and, you know, implements correct training, not this anti-bias stuff. Hmm. Um they they start to feel more comfortable. So you don't see escalations. You more so see maybe they've escalated to this extent. The boss comes in, knocks them down a peg, and then they're like, okay, I don't need to do this anymore. Because it's exhausting. It is exhausting yeah. for people to be in the power position all the time. I'm, within the knitting quilting community, <laughs> is it has it ever like has it reached its peak does it not because i keep on seeing stories every once in a while but another takedown another takedown another takedown another takedown I thought it did, to be honest. It was actually quiet for a while in the knitting community. And then it was a couple of weeks ago. I want to say it was it was right around, well, it was right around the time that all the Black Lives Matters protests were starting to pick up. And it just, it, it went from zero to 110 in oh. a day. And all of a sudden, they started going after every major person in the knitting community again. But it seems to have um, dropped pretty quickly now. But, you know, there was one guy that... He, he his store and his house are in Minneapolis blocks away from where the riots were and he hadn't made a statement and he uh, he did um a live stream from his store just talking about knitting and I think he was he was trying to manage his own stress level is is my perception of it and they were like how dare you talk about knitting without making a statement and they went after him and completely just hmm. destroyed him and mobbed him for days and there were several apologies issued and hmm. all this stuff so I thought it had peaked and then apparently apparently it is not <laughs> what's your intuition about why that uh escalation happened over the last month i guess june was the a very disastrous yeah. month for us emotionally i think that um well at least in the knitting world they hadn't really gone after anyone in a while and i think this is actually true more generally because they here's were hungry the thing, when they were well. They were hungry. They were. It's like they were hibernating, right? It's like we had the pandemic. We had an actual problem. And what was so interesting to me was the SGWs were all laying low during the pandemic. It was kind of like they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to insert their agenda into things. And so they just weren't doing anything. And and I think many of us thought we were like, has it finally died? Yeah, I, I was thinking there, that too. <laughs> there are like real problems in the world now, and so we don't have to deal with the make believe ones. But the minute that that um, that the thing happened with George Floyd, and I want to be very clear, I said this on my channel about a million times, but I think I should say it here. What happened to George Floyd was a tragedy. It was a murder. It should not have happened. And I think we all agreed on that. We all agreed that that that, that should absolutely not have happened. But that was their moment. And they seized it and they came back with a vengeance. And it was almost like it's I mean, I'm convinced that I'm convinced that this is an addiction for them. And this hmm. is not about fairness or justice this is about we need to feed this emotional addiction yes. that we have and it is an addiction to emotion i mean people can get anything that happens this is why i love mindfulness so much anything that happens in our head will manifest itself in our bodies 
right? And so when we learn to be in control of our emotions, um, we can we can actually feel physically better. So, but but what's happening with the SJWs is they are so addicted to outrage, they are so addicted to anger that that there there is actually a physical body addiction to those emotions and. People don't understand what I say, what I mean when I say we are physically addicted to emotion. So I'm going to, I'm going to preempt the question. I'm going to explain it. Think about a time when you've had a nightmare. Say, say you have just woken up from a nightmare and you had a nightmare where you were being chased through the woods by an ax murderer and you woke up. And what are you physically feeling if you've woken up from that nightmare, Benjamin? Uh, high arousal, I guess. Is the... high ar- <laughs> I suppose high arousal. Your heart's probably racing. Yeah. Right? You're probably sweating. Your whole body might be tense. Maybe you feel like you just ran a 5K through the woods. Yeah. Did you just run a 5K? Um, in my mind. In your mind? Yeah. But what happened in your mind physically manifested in your body. Okay. Right. Yeah. And so that's the same. That's that's what we're talking about. Yeah. When when we have strong emotions, and they could be positive emotions, could be negative emotions. When we have strong emotions in our head, what happens is our brain our brain tries to help us out, and our brain produces all sorts of wonderful hormones that it just sinks into our body because it's saying, "I'm going to help you physically feel the emotions that you're having in your head." But the brain doesn't make judgments. It doesn't say, "Carlin." Do you really want to feel angry? No, I think you want to feel calm. I'm going to give you calm hormones. No, brain doesn't do that. Brain says, if you feel angry, I'm going to give you angry hormones. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens, I see this happen in the workplace all the time. So what happens if you have uh, an, uh, an average employee that hates their boss, their boss causes them all sorts of stress. Every time they see their boss, they get a little bit angry. And so this, this person sees their boss every day, every day their brain, gives them these nice little anger hormones that makes their body feel angry, right? What happens when the boss goes on vacation? And all of hmm. a sudden, they stop getting that hit of those hormones every single day. And for the first couple of days, they're like, this is great. This is like, I'm on vacation too. I don't have to see the boss. I'm not getting angry, all this stuff. What happens by about day three or four is they start actively going through withdrawal <laughs> from the emotions, So they go through a physical withdrawal because they're not getting that hit from hormones from their brain, right? So the body's like, brain, we had a good thing going here. Like, you got angry. I got those hormones. Like, what what happened? And so when that happens, they start creating problems. They start creating problems where there were no problems before. So they start getting annoyed about silly things. They're like, you didn't put a smiley face in that email. What the hell? And they start these interpersonal conflicts over nothing. And when you have See, the idea of microaggressions coming in, then you have just a carte blanche. Oh, yeah. Anything can be a microaggression. That's what's so great about microaggressions <laughs> is literally any single thing can be a microaggression. And, and you know, let's just ignore for a, a moment that no no single microaggression affects two people the same way. That doesn't matter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they start to look for things to be upset about. And this is exactly what's going on with the SJW stuff is is it will never, ever, ever be enough because they are addicted to the emotions of anger and outrage. I noticed that about myself. I think it was in 2015. I noticed that I was going on to a specific subreddit because they had this 
type of outrage porn that I was really into. It loosely tied to Gamergate, and I was just like looking at all these crazy SJWs like ruining the gaming community, and like, and I'm like, whoa, you're you're now you're looking for that now. You're looking for that that hit now, and you see that on Twitter too. If if two days goes by, if two days go by without a cancellation, they'll find somebody to cancel. Oh, and that happened to me with the knitting stuff, too. And I think it's actually happened with a lot of the knitters is we're we're actively looking to engage in these because the thing about the knitters is we fought back. Right. Okay. A lot of us fought back about against the, the crazy SGW. So okay. now I feel like we're all on guard, kind of like looking for this stuff. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is um, it's that quote about not becoming the monsters yeah. that you're fighting. Yeah, because I, I really am afraid of that because sometimes I get. I get. I feel like I go from zero to sixty in terms of anger so quickly with these people. I'm like, nope, not today. Okay, yeah. SJW. So, what were some of the tactics that the knitting, the good, the the Jedi knitters used against the huh. Sith knitters that um, were effective? So I think the biggest thing was just speaking up at first, to be honest, which was okay. not altogether an easy thing because we're talking about. Literally, I mean, one of the, the instances in the knitting wars was um, one person, the, the worst mobbing that happened was um, this one person wrote a poem about kindness and posted it to Instagram. And that was not considered to be acceptable. That was considered to be tone policing. And he got mobbed by hundreds, if not thousands of people for days and days and days. And, and it, is a, it, sounds, it sounds silly, but he actually ended up um, going to the hospital on suicide watch because they destroyed his business. No, I, I'm, not la- I'm laughing in yeah. commiseration. That, oh, it's I, really I, I intense. It, it, no, it was it was awful, and thank thank God he's okay now. But um, it was it was really difficult to speak up, and I I wasn't the first to speak up by any means, but I think I was one of the earlier ones. And how I did it was I just posted the definition of the word bullying on my Instagram and just tagged their little hashtags in it. Hmm. And I did my dissertation about workplace bullying, so I. I understand what bullying looks like. Hmm. And so it was just little things like that. It was, I was posting the definition of bullying. We had um, another person, Nancy round rabbit on Instagram. She started just posting these one word posts um, that, that talked about the different phenomena we were seeing to try to teach people what was going on. Um, at the same time, we were, we were very lucky that unsafe space, which is, you know, a show that both you and I have been on, on YouTube had, they started talking about the knitting wars and, and they started explaining what was going on and that was actually really helpful and we a lot of us call it our favorite knitting podcast now because they still are the people talking about this the most (laughs) but it helped explain to us what was going on and why we were seeing it and i think once we understood what was going on that made it a lot easier to fight back so we spoke very briefly or you we just kind of pitched in i I threw an idea out there and you said yeah let's do that but yeah Organization after organization are being infiltrated, not only with training, but entire departments who are devoted to policing discourse and behavior called diversity, equity, inclusion, or just like this kind of uh, metastasized HR department. Um, But so there's a couple of different layers of problems. But what are some of the ideas that you have for somebody in a medium to small company who's watching this training kind of roll in and how how would they how do you perceive that they should stand against it or question it or go along uh, the route of trying to get it uh, minimized before it becomes part of the cor- corporate culture 
Well, I think one of the first things, and, um, you know, James Lindsay has written a lot about this on, on Twitter lately, and he's actually got a much better handle on how to fight back against it than I do in the organizational context, to be frank. But I think the very first thing that people need to understand is that most executives don't care about this. They can be releasing all the statements in the world. I don't care. Most of them do not care. They are simply doing it because they know that if they do not do it, the mob is going to come after them. That is that is all it is. And so maybe maybe there are, there's a handful of them that are actually bought into this ideology, but most of them flat not even if they even even if they have a diversity and inclusion office or or a person in charge of that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bought into this ideology and i think people need to have that context going into it because so many people are afraid to speak up against it and to say this is not the thing that is required now when they do have these diversity professionals um oftentimes they're going to default to them because again people need to have People need to have an idea of, of how executives make decisions, right? Executives just want to focus on the high level. They want to focus on the things that are actually driving profitability for the organization. HR, diversity and inclusion, that is a cost center for the organization. It is not producing profit. It is only costing the organization money. But it's one of those things, again, so so the executive is almost always going to say, you guys just do what you want to do. Just don't don't bother me with it. Don't take up too much of my time. So it's really the diversity and inclusion offices and the HR offices that are running the show in this. How I think that people can push back is really to question, question the value of these types of trainings to executives to the people that are actually paying the money for the Robin DiAngelo's to come in. Because I haven't seen, and, I, and I'm curious if, if you've seen any data about this too, but I have actively been looking for data that proves the effectiveness of this training. I haven't found it. I haven't have found you it. seen anything? It, the yeah. one thing that I found, and it was a while ago, said that it's actually more cost effective to focus on communications rather than implicit bias, just like on yeah. how to communicate with human beings as human beings. Yeah, and, th and that's what I believe, too, and, and that's why I, I put all the emphasis on the work style training, because when you look at these, um, you know, I have this, like, six-page document that the city of Seattle is using for their diversity training, and when you look at every single bullet point on that list of what makes a white supremacist organization, every single one of them goes back to conflicts in work style. Hmm. And guess which work style they have the most problem with? Trump's work style. Trump's work style. But, which is ironically the people who Their get the most power <laughs> in these uh, environments. Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. But that's what they characterize as a white supremacist organization is that overtly dominant style when they, you know, if, if everyone just stepped back and understood more about themselves, what they're bringing to the environment, how they can interact well with their coworkers, that would alleviate almost every single problem that they have. Almost every single one. And to bring it back to the individual, have you mm -hmm. been in a... Because not only are organizations suffering strain from white fragility, etc., but a lot of uh, family members, uh, personal relationships, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, friend, friends groups are now uh, being thrust into this, you need to be an anti-racist because it's no longer off the table for you to just not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. There's a very zealot, uh, evangelical kind of thrust to this doctrine. So how do you confront somebody or 
you know, how do you deal with somebody who's exhibiting very uh, zealot-like behavior and forcing you to believe in something? How do you kind of talk them down from that pitch? Well, I think the the phrase you use there that that's interesting is someone is forcing you to believe something. No one can ever force you to believe anything, right? You have to make the choice. Do I buy into this or do I not buy into this? And if you fundamentally don't buy into it, I think that it's a matter of you know, one of the issues that I have with with what's going on right now is that people are so afraid to speak up against it. People on all sides. I mean, I, I get emails all the time from people who, even if they're, even if they, even if they hate Trump, they hate everything he's doing. They're like, I'm not on board with what's going on, but I'm afraid if I say it, I'm going to lose my job. So let's just, mm, I mean, okay. stepping back, you know, in any organization, probably about 50% of the people there are not supporting this. And we know that because probably about 50% of the people, frankly, voted for Trump, right? And so and so they're not on board with this, but they're terrified to speak up. I think that that is actually the best thing that we can all contribute to this situation right now is if we are not comfortable with what's going on, it doesn't matter how adamant the person is standing in front of you. The person, you are responsible for what you are contributing to the situation. You are not responsible for anyone else's response to what you are contributing. And so many people are worried about their response hmm. that they're forgetting to focus on what they are giving to it. So I think speaking up and not worrying about, they let them have their hissy fit, let them wear themselves out. It's like a child on the floor screaming and beating the floor. Let them cry and wear themselves out, but you don't have to give into it. But the, in an employment situation, mm -hmm. You're responsible for your livelihood, your rent and your children, whatever mm -hmm. your job is helping you support. So if you're putting that on the line, it's not just you have to be responsible for the response that you're going to get for speaking up and standing up. Yeah. And, yeah. and you could lose your job. Yeah. But you have to ask yourself, I mean, first off, getting fired is not as scary as a lot of people think it is it's it's really not you are going to be able to get another job i promise you you're going to be able to get another job but most of the time it's not going to come to that and what i've thought about quite a bit is what if everyone in any organization that doesn't support this just spoke up and said no are they going to fire half the organization no they're not they can't that would be shooting themselves in the foot. Mm -hmm. And so that's that, that's why speaking up is so important. Don't be afraid of losing the job. If you are going to get fired for standing your ground around something that has nothing to do with the work that you were hired to do, then do you really want to work there anyway? Honestly, mm -hmm. there are a lot of organizations that are just fine that you can go work for one of them. And I know it's, it's a little bit tricky given the economy is kind of bouncing back right now, and I get that. But they can't fire everyone who speaks up if everyone stood together and, and had their voices heard. They can't do it. Is there a way to there's, – there's a number of different ways to tackle this ideology or this philosophy and this set of behaviors that we call all these different names. And uh, the problem with the names is that uh, it, it – it seems like we're ragging on SJWs when we're actually talking about a very specific phenomenon that's repeating itself over and over and over again through all these different layers of life. Um, is there ways of arguing against that that could be used uh, or is mindfulness 
a way of arguing against a philosophy by by showing its strengths and weaknesses, by showing the effect that it's actually having on somebody. And is that a ta- I, it might be kind of ethically squishy area here, but is that well, a way to to gauge the reality of a belief system? You know, I mean, the, the the spiritual part of me that says that reality is what you make of it, which I know is not something people want to hear when it comes to particularly in relation to the SJW stuff. But, um, you know, truths are true to those who believe them. And I think that if you can get yourself to I think if you can get yourself to a mental place using mindfulness, using meditation, using whatever tools you want to use to feel powerful, to feel in control, to feel comfortable expressing your point of view. I mean, the thing of it is, and I don't have empirical evidence to show this. I absolutely do not. But my lived experience, for lack of a better term, is is that if you are showing up fully and with confidence, then most of the time, the organization, and especially HR offices, and especially diversity and inclusion offices, they're going to back down. Hmm. Most of the time, HR office. listen, here's what people need to understand. HR offices and organizations do not have as much power as people think they do. Same with diversity and inclusion offices, because again, if you're looking at the executive is up here, and then you have HR, diversity, inclusion, sometimes they're combined. They like they are more of a nuisance to most executives than, than they are a benefit. The only reason that HR and diversity and inclusion has power is because they convince the staff that they they are that they are implementing the will of the executive but most of the time they are not and if the executive gets wind that people especially people that are producing for the organization that are hitting bottom line goals that maybe they've been, they maybe they've they've caught the eye of the executive in in some way or another if the executive finds out that HR is going after their favorite employees that are actually creating profit for the organization they're going to tell HR to cut it out HR can't fire anyone unless someone signs off on it that's that's just the way it is in most organizations not all but in most that's the case and people go ahead is HR necessary for organizations? Yeah, uh, yes, but but most organizations use it very ineffectively. I would say I think HR can be incredibly valuable for organizations. There are a lot of things about the employee experience that that needs to be managed. Everything from onboarding to benefits to perks to recognition to um, all the different tools you can use for all these things. These things need to be managed somewhere. Um, I actually think that it's a mistake when organizations outsource their HR and a lot of organizations do that um, or when they use HR just as like a CYA thing to make sure they don't get in legal trouble and sued but there's a lot of benefits that can be had when HR people are actually focused on the employee experience and setting in place systems and processes to support that rather than doing these little witch hunt things yeah that's the question so how do you how do you perceive HR got infected by this kind of policing inquisition kind of stuff it seems like mm-hmm. drastic overreach of what they were supposed to do but now well, it's kind of just across the board could you help me understand that it's, yeah it started a couple of years ago with you know what's funny is <laughs> the main hr organization in the world the society for human resources management i've spoken at their conference the last several years i was supposed to speak at it actually this week and they canceled it um why would they cancel it 
I don't know. I was supposed to go to San Diego, man. I was like, I was ready to go. Um, <laughs> but they did cancel it. And um, and so this, the, the organization, uh, SHRM, has actually gotten in trouble with the HR community because Johnny Taylor, who's the president of SHRM, has worked very closely with the Trump administration. And SHRM has not bought into this stuff. They really haven't. They've, they've been working alongside the Trump administration on all sorts of things. And there have actually been... A lot of campaigns that the HR community has kind of been trying to, to bubble up to to fix the main HR organization because they aren't buying into this stuff. So I think um, and I think that's actually good news because not as many HR people are infected with this as people think. Okay. And this is important context. There, there are a portion of them that are, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but it's really not as far reaching as everyone thinks. There are a lot of HR people that are like, I don't care about any of this stuff. I just want to go in and keep my head down and, and you know, process applications or whatever they're doing all day. They really don't care. Um, and that's good news. The bad news is that is that the people who have been infected with it have definitely gained power in the last couple months. It, it is it is now being taken far more seriously. Um, and I think it started... Well, see, here's the thing. There are legitimate... There are legitimate trainings and, and strategies associated with diversity and inclusion that can benefit organizations, right? There are very legitimate things that, that can be done and there are actually some really great diversity and inclusion training professionals out there that do not buy in to the white fragility implicit bias stuff. There's all sorts of things you can talk about with diversity and inclusion. Um, those started to get infected though about a year ago I think I think a lot of them a lot of them started to a lot of them uh, read white fragility the first time it became popular and started and started infusing those strategies into organizations but I would say it's only been the last year that I've really started to see that gain any traction and only the last couple months where I've seen it kind of go through the roof now but what not makes, everywhere what made uh, Sherm resilient to this what was the philosophy or... I don't know about the philosophy, but it has, a, you know, the ironic thing is Johnny Taylor, again, the president of Sherm, is black and and his chief of staff is black and they just never bought into it. I think that they I, I don't know their politics for sure, but Johnny Taylor's always seemed pretty pleased anytime he's been around Trump. So I tend <laughs> to think that he's a conservative. And so I think that he just didn't fundamentally buy into it. And again, I, we talk about strong leadership, right? Okay. He didn't buy into it. The organization didn't buy into it. Well, why would? Why do you think it came from the left then? Why do you think that Democrats or the Democratic Party was susceptible to it? What's the opposite of resilience to this mm. social justice cancel what culture? Why did it come from the left? It came from the left because Trump got elected. And it was, I think it was I, a reaction. I think so. I mean, I don't know for sure, and I'm sure there there are people that have thought more on this topic than I have. But well, no, you know what? That's actually not true. I think that this has been brewing on the left for a while. It's funny. I actually, I I'd actually been questioning about whether or not I I kind of like because about 
six, seven months ago, I kind of went down the YouTube rabbit hole and that's when all my friends were convinced that I was like radicalized oh, yeah. by the alt-right. <laughs> and and I was actually starting to wonder that. I was like, were you radicalized by the YouTube? And I went back just the other day and I found a post on Facebook that I made from 2014 after the Lobby decision when all of my liberal friends were like freaking out about the Hobby Lobby decision. And I was kind of like, I don't understand what the big deal is. It's what fine. was the decision? Could you? Yeah, it was. It? Um, oh, gosh, I'm going to totally foul this up. Um, it was something to the effect of Hobby Lobby only offered certain types of birth control for their employees. And it ended up going to the Supreme. Their employees sued them. They wanted access to all different types of birth control. The people that run Hobby Lobby. It is a family-owned private business. Um, they're deeply religious people, and they didn't want to offer certain forms of birth control that that were taken after the baby was conceived as opposed to before. And so they got sued by their employees, and the Supreme Court decision came down that said that, um, that Hobby Lobby, because it was a privately held close family-owned business they were not they they could because of freedom of religion they didn't have to offer these forms of birth control and so the left kind of went crazy and they were screaming about how you know this is you know against women's reproductive rights and all this stuff what they never talked about was the fact that hobby lobby was already offering birth control to its staff it was in, in the insurance they had they they had like 14 different options of birth control that they could choose from and so when when this case happened i was like when I first got on birth control back in college, I had three options, and three options was enough. If someone can't pick from fourteen different options, then they are like it's just like not okay. Like they they could be an adult, make a choice. Yeah. And so, um, I, I tell that story only because I don't think that this started with Trump, but um, because it was happening way back then. Yeah. But it really escalated with Trump, and I think just the shock of Trump getting elected, they never quite got over it, and then. And then this whole resist movement started right after Trump got elected, right? Now, one of the mindfulness things that I always teach is what resists persists. What that essentially means is that when you're fighting something, when you're fighting aggressively towards something, you tend not to defeat the thing. You just create bigger problems. It actually makes it a much bigger problem than it would have been otherwise. If the left had just relaxed and let Trump do his thing, and yeah, he's probably going to implement policies you don't like, whatever, but just like relax, let him do his thing, let him be president, pick a much better candidate than Joe Biden to run against him in four years, they probably could have gotten him out. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, but they didn't do that. They resisted. There were all these resist marches. I mean, the day after Trump got inaugurated, what happened? The women's march, the resistance march. And so they created a much bigger problem that I even wonder if they have control over this problem anymore. I don't know. That's the question. I asked tongue in cheek if I'm more worried about Trump getting reelected or Biden getting elected and worried specifically about the left because I don't trust it either way. I know that if Trump gets elected, they're going to they've only ever doubled down and gotten more and more irate in the process if it's even possible. I mean, eventually grammar itself will just deteriorate under the brunt of their outrage. But if Biden gets in, you know, like I said in our last stream, it what if D'Angelo, well, she's already thankfully being canceled, but what are they going to put implement with regards to all this training, with, with regards to all these 
frankly, outrageous and illiberal ideas about racism or whatever other uh, thing that they want to do. So I just I just to answer or to, to speak to can they slow down? Can we get back to a moderate Democrat, moderate progressivism? What, I don't know. Do what, Are you worried? Am I worried? <laughs> what's, what's your um, outlook? I'm very worried. I think that if if I'm choosing, you know, I, there was there was a minute that I was very hardcore. I'm voting for Trump. I don't care anymore. The left can go, you know, do whatever. Like I'm done. When was um, that? And that, that was that was your moment. Your your viral um, moment. So no, it was actually after the viral moment. So so what happened with my with my moment is so I live in New Hampshire, right? So I I had actually seen every single Democratic presidential candidate. I was I voted for Pete Buttigieg in the New Hampshire primary. I was, you know, I was very into New Hampshire politics for the for the primary. And then I like the day before the New Hampshire primary, Trump was coming to town to have a rally and I kind of thought, well, why not go? It's going to be a spectacle. If nothing else, it's going to be like a fun time. I've never been to a Trump rally before. So I went and then I wrote about just my experience and my experience meeting Trump supporters and discovering, lo and behold, that they were not actually bad people, that there were no Nazis at the Trump rally. There were no Klan robes at the Trump rally. They were just like normal, average, everyday people that just had different ideas than me. And I don't know. I mean, I suppose this shouldn't have been a revelatory moment that that Trump supporters are not evil, mean people, but it was because I had been stuck in the liberal echo chamber of like MSNBC and social media and my friends. And so I wrote this article and it, and I didn't say anything profound in it other than we need to start mending the political divide. And I'm not going to hate people. I don't know simply because they voted for someone different than me. I was just, I was really over that, that kind of angst. And so the article went viral and I immediately got attacked from every which way from the left. And it, I, I won't say I wasn't expecting it, but um, but it hits you hard when when all you do is write an article saying these are not bad people, and all of a sudden people are going after your business, people are contacting your clients, people are sending you hate mail every single day. I lost so many friends in that, and just being treated really really badly um, by everyone that I had that I had known, even my own mother. I went on. I was on like Fox News a couple days after my article went viral and and I hadn't been able I hadn't been able to get a hold of my mother up until like half an hour before I was on Fox News to tell her like turn on the channel or whatever and I told her what was going on and she was like Carlin that's great but those are the enemy hmm. and I was like okay did you not read the article that I sent you three days ago or something like that? Um, so it was essentially the blowback from the left. And then the pandemic happened. And I thought that the Democrats were being very obstructionist in terms of um, helping people and the relief package around that. And then seeing and I always said, even back last fall before any of this, I always said, if the Democrats try to um, to destroy the economy, for the sake of winning an election, I will never forgive them. Because I was having the best year ever for my business before all of this blew up. And I was so I was very annoyed. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm voting for Trump. You can all go jump off a, a bridge for all I care. I was very angry. And I kind of waffled back. And I was like, you know, I actually like some of the things Trump has done. I really do. But some of them, I'm just like, man, Trump, like, get it together with the attitude <laughs> yeah. and the tweeting. And, like, I really think that 
Trump could have come out a lot stronger after, you know, George Floyd's death. And he could have said, you know, maybe like make Juneteenth a national holiday or something. Like there's so many things he could have done to bring people together mm. in that moment. And he didn't do it. And so then I was like, no, I'm not, I don't know if I'm voting for you anymore. But here's the thing is I actually think that this is a much bigger question. Now, I think that where I'm at right now is this is not a decision between Trump and Biden as much as it is a decision between do you want an authoritarian control freak party to take over our country or do you want to give Trump the helm a little while longer, even though he's not your favorite person in the world? And so I actually think that this is because one of the things I have to say about Trump is he hasn't been a fascist in this whole thing. He didn't knock down Chaz in Seattle with the army like he could have. He has kind of sat back and said, you mayors and governors, you do your thing. He has not been a fascist. And so fundamentally for me, this is a choice between authoritarianism and um, liberalism, for lack of a better word. Hmm. And on that premise, I think I have to go with Trump because Joe Biden, if he gets elected, is not going to be leading anything. He's not going to be in charge. I don't think he's leading anything right now. No. Maybe he has and some sort of input into what his Twitter says, but I doubt even that. I doubt it. No, I saw I saw a video of him the other day where people were asking if he has um, cognitive tests, and he was like, "I'm tested all the time. Just look at me." And he, he didn't even answer the question. I was like, "Do you even know who you're running against right now? Do you know what's happening?" <laughs> huh. And it's just irresponsible. Like the fact that the Democratic Party of all of the candidates that they had. Put up Joe Biden. I'm yeah. like, do you even want to win? Are you even trying? Yeah, maybe maybe he was a loss. It seems like... So th these mobs come through and force corporations to make these statements. And now McDonald's is promoting Kendi. She's the stupidest man in the world. If you <laughs> remember my Evergreen documentary... There's yes. this one guy named Felix Braffith, who's really a horrible public speaker, but he has the mic a whole lot, and he's doing a lot of like the preaching at the canoe meeting. But he's like mm -hmm. kind of this weird, vacuous, just diversocrat. You know, he's just talking about revolution, yeah. but he has no charisma. And Kendi's the same way. But anyways, all these corporations are making all these overtures. All these businesses are presumably putting in these workshops and trainings. And for sure, academia has... It's it's bolted right into academia that the the most powerful people on the campus are these diversity, equity, and inclusion officers and stuff, which is horrible, horrible, horrible situation to be. And I think it's a different situation than with uh, corporate corporations because corporations yeah. actually have to have a bottom line. All the uh, colleges have to do is just rack uh, munch on student debt. Um, mm in a way um so but the mob has a very strong power of flexing and and forcing these companies to flex you also have on the ground level you have antifa and its wild variants doing absolutely insane shit on the streets so but maybe maybe that is just a distraction maybe the uh, overreaction that i kind of uh, dread from the left from the authoritarian left will kind of fizzle out but i still feel like they're going to keep on doubling down and doubling down and doubling down uh maybe not to infinity but do you think do you think that it'll just the democrat or the left will learn its lesson that they can't 
go that far? They they have to kind of gel. Do you think that that's a possibility? I don't know because I've I've thought a lot about this. I'm I'm terrified of what happens if Trump gets reelected in November, and I do think Trump's going to get reelected in November. And I think that you know I've spent a, I spent a lot of time in the past day or so in. Um, there are all these groups on Facebook about exposing racists and like providing evidence about people's racism and yeah. and and creating these strategies of reaching out to their employers and all these things. And I've I've spent a lot of time in those groups in the past couple of days, and um, I think that they would be legitimately shocked if Trump got elected. I think that they would really not see it coming at all. They're convinced that Joe Biden is an absolute lock, that everyone's in favor of Biden, that no one's possibly going to vote for Trump. And I don't think that that's the case at all. Hmm. And so I think that, I think it's going to be 2016 all over again, except they'd probably take it much harder this time Hmm. than they did last time. And I think that one of the things that we're seeing in terms of you know, we're seeing this on Twitter and this the, the Twitter and Reddit and yeah. um, you know these these mass cancellations of conservatives. I think they're terrified, and so hmm. I, you know, part of me says that it might just be easier if Biden got elected, just give them what they want. But I don't think that's actually going to fix the problem. At the end, I think it's just going to embolden them, hmm. and I think that's what we see on college campuses, right? Is is they get they get this little they get a victory, they get emboldened, and then they're like, "Ooh, what more can I take? What more can I take?" Like children, seeing how many times they can go back and take candy out of the jar, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I thought you were saying that they're feasting on children, like, "Ooh, I can have all the children <laughs> that I want." <laughs> no, well, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I think they, they thought it would help them meet their goal. Who knows what they would do? So what's your uh, plan going ahead? What are you focusing on the next few weeks with regards to your media output? Or do you have like a conception of w- what you're up to as you move through this virtual space? Yeah, I think one of the things I've been focusing on quite a bit is, um, is you know, I never thought I would put myself in a position of helping conservatives to win an election. Um, <laughs> like, life, man, life comes at you in mysterious ways. Um, but one of the things I'm actually spending a lot of time doing is I have a community on locals where I have been coaching people who are Trump supporters to express their beliefs. And, hmm. you know, I don't always agree with what with what they with what they're saying. But I think that it's very important if I'm coming from a place where I believe mindfulness and empowerment is important and, and um, you know, taking control of your experience is important, then expression is a gift that I think that we all have been given by virtue of just existing. We don't have to do anything to earn the ability to express ourselves, but we it's kind of like a use it or lose it thing. Hmm. And I think a lot of people who have, have supported Trump have been quiet and if I want Trump to win in November, and I think that that is important, um, I I want to be helpful in terms of teaching people how to find their voice. Because one of the things I've heard from Trump supporters over and over again, and it's so funny because I never would have guessed this when I was still a Democrat, is um, is that they don't speak up. They're the silent majority. They're going to show up and vote in November, and that's all they're going to do. Because if they speak up or if they wear their MAGA hats or if they put a Trump sign in their front yard, someone's going to destroy their yard or key their car or all this stuff. They're so afraid. And, hmm. you know, if I can help people to find their voice and to say what they think without fear, questions of it, 
that to me is is time well spent. And you know, maybe Trump wins, maybe he doesn't. But um, helping mm. people to find their power is something mm -hmm. that I'm very interested in. Yeah, it seems like we're under a soft form of the reign of terror in the way. Like there is a lot of social pressure not to disagree with this particular narrative. And I've been trying to do my own, you know, contributions to that. And you're doing wonderful. You kind of came out running. It's just so amazing what you're doing. I mean, well, I was a professional speaker for, well, I still am, I guess, technically a professional speaker. There are just no events that I can go and speak <laughs> at. <laughs> so I think I, I'm, I'm naturally pretty comfortable speaking up. And, you know, I've been very lucky that I've had a lot of teachers that have taught me how to speak up and have, have given me that power um, and have helped me to gain the confidence to do it. And, you know, one of the things that I've always been really good at is coaching people. And so, um, you know, I think and I think it's important. I think that one of the things that I get great joy from is watching how people change when they realize that they can speak up and say what they want and no one can hurt them. If you come from a plate, an empowered place, and you just you say what you think without caring what the repercussions are, people usually are not going to come back and do anything to you. And and so that's really, I think, the most important thing to me right now. But I also think that, you know, I think people like you, like me, anyone that's speaking up on these subjects, we're through virtue of us doing what we're doing, we're giving other people permission to do the same and we're showing them how to do it and we're showing them that there are all sorts of different ways to speak up that you don't need to be aggressive about it you yeah. don't need to be mean um i think one of the things that that i really struggle with on youtube especially is that so many people are so negative and they're so pessimistic about what's going on and mm. so mm -hmm. what i really try to do with my content is i try to show that you know Life is what you make of it. These situations are what you make of it. And you can always look at things in an optimistic way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't have to be doom and gloom. The Democrats are doom and gloom enough <laughs> right now. You don't have to follow suit. <laughs> huh. Well, where can people find you then? Yeah, so people can find me on my channel, which I think you linked in, linked in the description yeah. here, so they can visit me over there. They can find me on Twitter at Dr. Carlin B, and they can find me on Parlor, which I actually think is like way better than Twitter right now, um, at just my first name, Carlin. Carlin. And, uh, and Locals, too, which is... And uh, Locals. That's yeah, kind of a... Could you explain that? Just I guess just to me? Yeah. So locals is kind of it's it's Dave Rubin's platform um, yeah. about just like kind of creating like these these un, un uncensored communities that people can join for for their favorite content creators. So I'm on there. I'm at kb.locals.com. Um, you know, all sorts of people are on there. Zuby's on there. Dave Rubin's obviously on there. Um, and it's just it's basically like a little um, contained social network. So you can you can post whatever you want. You can have interesting discussions. You're not one of the reasons I joined locals was I trust Dave Rubin not to censor things, <laughs> to be really honest. And and it was actually, it was, it was funny because I have a discussion group on Facebook that's just dedicated to civil discussion um, from a variety of different perspectives. And almost immediately upon launching that group, Facebook started censoring us oh, and started wow. just deleting stuff from the group. So I was like, well, this is not going to last Sons very of bitches, long. man. Just <laughs> amazed. 
like it's crazy and some of the stuff they're censoring it's like it's so innocuous like one of the things that just got immediately deleted from the group when someone posted and i got a notification as the admin but it was just a list of questions like why can i shop at the supermarket but i can't shop at tj maxx it was just a list of questions like that and facebook nuked it um so so i'm doing that on locals now to get away from the censorship well thank you so much for joining me i hope we can do this uh, semi-regularly or whatever me too man i think that you're one of the voices on youtube that i really appreciate because you're just so kind of like even keeled and i really appreciate the perspective and just like the sane conversation <laughs> sanity is at a premium yeah. right now well that and when i do go crazy it really pops it really pops when i get angry it does so i've like... really you've been getting more persnickety lately and i've really enjoyed it like you did something like i think it was like last night i was like "Ooh, benjamin's having a moment <laughs> <laughs> well they went after they went after gender critical and like i said i don't totally agree with that community but i want them a part of this conversation it's just insane that they get nuked and then all that it's, porn's up, too. It's just insane. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, you know, free speech is one of those things that, like, I've cared about the most since I was since I was a kid. And I, I learned when I was, like, 13, 14 years old that the way that you protect free exchange of ideas, freedom of speech, is that you have to defend the ideas that are most reprehensible. I learned that when I was a kid. Mm. Apparently, mm-hmm. people don't learn that anymore. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, we're we're gonna quick uh, see the product of of uh, the squelching of speech. It's gonna it's gonna cause even more problems than they're trying to fix. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'll let you thank get you on to me. your uh, the rest of my day. Yeah, whatever <laughs> whatever that's gonna be. Yes, thank you for having me, my friend. All right, I'll uh, talk to you soon. All right, bye. Bye. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.